This video is part of an audiobook series featuring Outliers, The Story of Success by Malcolm Gladwell. For more audiobooks, please visit my YouTube channel or my website for downloads. Chapter 3, The Trouble with Geniuses, Part 1. Section 1. In the fifth episode of the 2008 season, the American television quiz show, titled One Versus 100, had as a special guest a man named Christopher Langan. The television show One Versus 100 is one of many that sprang up in the wake of the phenomenal success of Who Wants to Be a Millionaire? It features a permanent gallery of 100 ordinary people who serve as what is called the mob. Each week they match wits with a special invited guest and at stake is a million dollars. The guest has to be smart enough to answer more questions correctly than his or her 100 adversaries, and by that standard, few have ever seemed as superbly qualified as Christopher Langan. The voiceover begins, quote, Tonight the mob takes on their fiercest competition yet. Meet Chris Langan, who many call the smartest man in America. End quote. The camera did a slow pan of a stock, muscular man in his 50s. The average person has an IQ of 100, Einstein 150, Chris has an IQ of 195. He's currently wrapping his big brain around the theory of the universe, but will his king-size cranium be enough to take down the mob for one million dollars? Out strode Langan onto the stage amid wild applause. The show's host, Bob Saget, asked him, quote, You don't think you need to have a high intellect to do well on 1 versus 100, do you? End quote. Saget looked at Langan oddly, as if he were some kind of laboratory specimen. Langan replied in a deep, certain voice, quote, Actually, I think it could be a hindrance. To have a high IQ, you tend to specialize and think deep thoughts. You avoid trivia. But now that I see these people, and he glanced at the mob, the amusement in his eyes betraying just how ridiculous he found the proceedings, I think I'll do okay. End quote. Over the past decade, Chris Langan has achieved a strange kind of fame. He has become the public face of genius in American life, a celebrity outlier. He gets invited on news shows and profiled in magazines, and he has been the subject of the documentary by the filmmaker Errol Morris, because, all because of a brain that seems to defy description. The television news show 2020 once hired a, neuro a neuropsychologist to give Langan an IQ test and Langan's score was literally off the charts, too high to be accurately measured. Another time, Langan took an IQ test specially designed for people too smart for ordinary IQ tests. He got all the questions right, except for one. Footnote, the super IQ test was created by Ronald K. Hoflin, who is himself someone with an unusually high IQ. Here's a sample question from the verbal analogies section. Quote, teeth is to hen as nest is to, end quote. If you want to know the answer, I'm afraid I have no idea. End of footnote. Langan, he was speaking at six months of age. When he was three, he would listen to the radio on Sundays as the announcer read the comics aloud, and he would follow along on his own until he had taught himself to read. At five, he began questioning his grandfather about the existence of God, and remembers being disappointed in the answers he got. In school, Langan could walk into a test in a foreign language class not having studied at all, and if there were two or three minutes before the instructor arrived, he could skim the textbook and ace the test. 
In his early teenage years, while working as a farmhand, he started to read widely in the area of theoretical physics. At 16, he made his way through Bertrand Russell and Alfred North Whitehead's famously abstruse masterpiece, Principia Mathematica. He'd got a perfect score on his SAT, even though he fell asleep at one point during the test. His brother Mark says of Langan's summer routine in high school, quote, He did math for an hour, then he did French for an hour, then he studied Russian, then he would read philosophy, and he did that religiously every day, end quote. Another of his brothers, Jeff, says, quote, You know, when Christopher was 14 or 15, he would draw things as a joke, and it would be like a photograph. When he was 15, he would match Jimi Hendrix lick for lick on a guitar. Boom, boom, boom. Half the time, Christopher didn't attend school at all. He would just show up for tests, and there was nothing they could do about it. To us, it was hilarious. He could brief a semester's worth of textbooks in two days, and take care of whatever he had to take care of, and then get back to whatever he was doing in the first place. On a set of 1 vs. 100, Langan was poised and confident. His voice was deep. His eyes were small and fiercely bright. He did not circle around topics looking for the right phrase or double back to restate a previous sentence. For that matter, he did not say um or ah or use any form of conversational mitigation. His sentences came marching out one after another, polished and crisp like soldiers on a parade ground. Every question Saget threw at him he tossed aside as if it were a triviality. When his winnings reached 250000 he appeared to make a mental calculation that the risk of losing everything at that point were greater than the potential benefits of staying in. Abruptly, he stopped and said, I'll take the cash. He shook Bob Saget's hand firmly and vanished, exiting on top as, we like to think, geniuses invariably do. Section 2 just after the First World War, Lewis Terman, a young professor of psychology at Stanford University, met a remarkable boy named Henry Cowell. Cowell had been raised in poverty and chaos. Because he did not get along with other children, he had been unschooled since the age of seven. He worked as a janitor at a one-room schoolhouse not far from the Stanford campus, and throughout the day, Cowell would sneak away from his job and play the school piano. The music he made was beautiful. Terman's specialty was intelligence testing, the standard IQ test that millions of people around the world would take during the following 50 years, the Stanford Binet, was his creation. So he decided to test Cowell's IQ. The boy must be intelligent, he reasoned, and sure enough, he was. He had an IQ of above 140, which is near genius level. Terman was fascinated. How many other diamonds in the rough were there, he wondered. He began to look for others. He found a girl who knew the alphabet at 19 months, and another who was reading Dickens and Shakespeare by the time she was four. He found a young man who had been kicked out of law school because his professors did not believe that it was possible for a human being to precisely reproduce long passages of legal opinions from memory. In 1921, Terman decided to make the study of the gifted his life work. Armed with a large grant from the Commonwealth Foundation, he put together a team of field workers and sent them out into California's elementary schools. Teachers were asked to nominate the brightest students in their classes. Those children were given an intelligence test, and the students who scored in the top 10% were then given a second IQ test, 
and those who scored above 130 on that test were given a third IQ test. And from that set of results, Terman selected the best and the brightest. By the time Terman was finished, he had sorted through the records of some 250,000 elementary and high school students and identified 1,470 children whose IQs averaged over 140 and ranged as high as 200. That group of young geniuses came to be known as the termites, and they were the subject of what would become one of the most famous psychological studies in history. For the rest of his life, Terman watched over his charges like a mother hen. They were tracked and tested, measured and analyzed. Their educational attainments were noted, marriages followed, illnesses tabulated, psychological health charted, and every job and promotion change dutifully recorded. Terman wrote his recruits letters of recommendation for jobs and graduate school applications. He doled out a constant stream of advice and counsel, all the time recording his findings in thick red volumes entitled Genetic Studies of Geniuses. Terman once said, quote, There is nothing about an individual as important as his IQ, except possibly morals. End quote. And it was to those with a very IQ, he believed, that, quote, We must look for production of leaders who advance science, art, government, education, and social welfare generally. End quote. As his subjects drew older, Terman issued updates on their progress, chronicling their extraordinary achievements. Terman wrote giddily when his charges were in high school, quote, It is almost impossible to read a newspaper account of any sort of competition or activity in which California boys and girls participate without finding among the winners the names of one or more members of our gifted group, end quote. He took writing samples from some of his most artistically-minded students and had literary critics compare them to the early writings of famous authors. They could find no difference. All the signs pointed, he said, to a group with the potential for heroic stature. Terman believed that his termites were destined to be the future elite of the United States. Today, many of Terman's ideas remain central to the way we think about success. Schools have programs for the gifted. Elite universities often require that students take an intelligence test, such as the American Scholastic Aptitude Test, for admission. High-tech companies like Google or Microsoft carefully measure the cognitive abilities of prospective employees out of the same belief. They are convinced that those at the very top of the IQ scale have the greatest potential. At Microsoft, famously, job applications are asked a battery of questions designed to test their smarts, including the classic, why are manhole covers round? If you don't know the answer to that question, you're really not smart enough to work at Microsoft, apparently. By the way, the answer is that a round manhole can't fall into a man a ma round cover cannot fall into a manhole no matter how much you twist and turn it. A rectangular cover can. All you have to do is tilt it sideways. There you go. Now you can get into Microsoft. <laughs> All right. If I had magical powers and offered to raise your IQ by 30 points, you would say yes, right? You would assume that you would that would help you get further ahead in the world. And when we hear about someone like Chris Langan, our instinctive response is the same as Terman's instinctive response when he met Henry Cowell almost a century ago. We feel awe. Geniuses are the ultimate outliers. Surely there is nothing that can hold someone like that back. But is that true? So far, in Outliers, we've seen that extraordinary achievement is less about talent than it is about opportunity. 
In this chapter, I want to dig deeper into why that's the case by looking at the outlier in its purest and most distilled form, the genius. For years, we've taken our cues from people like Terman when it comes to understanding the significance of high intelligence. But, as we shall see, Terman made an error. He was wrong about his termites, and had he happened on the young Chris Langan working his way through Principia Mathematica at the age of 16, he would have been wrong about him for the same reason. Terman did not understand what a real outlier was, and that's a mistake we continue to make to this day. Section 3. One of the most widely used intelligence tests is something called Raven's Progressive Matrices. It requires no language skills or a specified body of acquired knowledge. It's a measure of abstract reasoning skills. A typical Raven's test consists of 48 items, each one harder than the one before it, and IQ is calculated based on how many items are answered correctly. Here's a question typical of the sort that is asked on the Raven's. Did you get it? I'm guessing that most of you did. The correct answer is C, but now let's try this one. It's the kind of really hard question that comes at the end of the Ravens. The correct answer here is A, and I have to confess I couldn't figure this one out, and I'm guessing most of you wouldn't either. Chris Langan almost certainly would, however. When we say that people like Langan are brilliant, what we mean is that they have the kind of mind that can figure out puzzles like the last question. Over the years, an enormous amount of research has been done in an attempt to determine how a person's performance on an IQ test like the Ravens translates to real-life success. People at the bottom of the scale, with an IQ below 70, are considered mentally disabled. A score of 100 is average. You probably need to be just above that mark to be able to handle college. To get into and succeed in a reasonably competitive graduate program, meanwhile, you probably need an IQ of at least 115. In general, the higher your score, the more education you'll get, the more money you're likely to make, and believe it or not, the longer you will live. But there's a catch. The relationship between a success and IQ works only up to a point. Once someone has reached an IQ of somewhere around 120, having additional IQ points doesn't seem to translate into any measurable real-world advantage. Quote, it is amply proven that someone with an IQ of 170 is more likely to think well than someone whose IQ is 70, from the British psychologist Liam Hudson. And this holds true where the comparison is much closer, between IQs of, say, 100 and 130. But the relation seems to break down when one is making comparisons between two people, both of whom have IQs which are relatively high, a mature scientist with an adult IQ of 130 is, likely, is as likely to win a Nobel Prize as is one whose IQ is 180. What Hudson is saying is that IQ is a lot like height in basketball. Does someone who is 5'6 have a realistic chance of playing basket, professional basketball? Not really. You need to be at least 6'0 or 6'1 to play at that level. And all things being equal, it's probably better to be 6'2 than 6'1 and better to be 6'3 than 6'2. But at a certain point, height stops mattering so much. A person who is 6'8 is not automatically better than someone who is 2 inches shorter. Michael Jordan, the greatest, the greatest player ever, arguably, was 6'6 after all. A basketball player only has to be tall enough, and the same is true of intelligence. Intelligence has a threshold. 
The introduction to the 1 versus 100 episode pointed out that Einstein had an IQ of 150 and Langan has an IQ of 195. Langan's IQ is 30% higher than Einstein's, but that doesn't mean that Langan is 30% smarter than Einstein. That's just ridiculous. All we can say is that when it comes to thinking about really hard things like physics, they are both clearly smart enough. The idea that IQ has a threshold, I realize, goes against our intuition. We think that, say, Nobel Prize winners in science must have the highest IQ scores imaginable, that they must be the kinds of people who get perfect scores on their entrance examinations to college, that they win every scholarship available, and that they have stellar academic records in high school, so much so that they were scooped up by top universities in the country. But take a look at the following list of where the last 25 Americans to win the Nobel Prize in Medicine got their undergraduate degrees, starting in 2007. No one would say that this list represents the college choices of the absolute best high schoolers in America. Yale and Columbia and MIT are on the list, but so are DePoe, Holy Cross, and Gettysburg College. It's a list of good schools. Along the same lines, here are the colleges of the last 25 American Nobel laureates in chemistry. To be a Nobel Prize winner, apparently, you have to be smart enough to get into a college at least as good as Notre Dame or the University of Illinois. That's all. Footnote. Just to be clear, it is still the case that Harvard produces more Nobel Prize winners than any other school. Just look at those lists. Harvard appears on both of them a total of three times. A school like Holy Cross appears just once, but wouldn't you expect schools like Harvard to win more Nobels than they do? Harvard is, after all, the richest, most prestigious school in history, and has its pick of the most brilliant undergraduates the world over. End of footnote. This is a radical idea, isn't it? Suppose that your teenage daughter found out that she had been accepted at two universities, Harvard and Georgetown. Where would you want her to go? I'm guessing Harvard because Harvard is a, quote, better, end quote, school. The students who score a good 10 to 15% higher on their entrance exams. But given what we are learning about intelligence, the idea that schools can be ranked like runners in a race makes absolutely no sense. Georgetown students may not be as smart on an absolute scale as the students at Harvard, but they are all clearly smart enough and future Nobel Prize winners come from schools like Georgetown as well as from schools like Harvard. The, the psychologist Barry Schwartz recently proposed that elite schools give up their complex admissions process and simply hold a lottery for everyone above the threshold. Schwartz says, quote, put people into two categories, good enough and not good enough. The ones who are good enough get put into a hat, and those who are not good enough gets rejected, end quote. Schwartz concedes that his idea has virtually no chance of being accepted, but he's absolutely right. As Hudson writes, and keep in mind that he did his research at elite all-male English boarding schools in the 1950s and 60s, quote, knowledge of a boy's IQ is of little help when you are faced with a room full of clever boys, end quote. Let me give you an example of the threshold effect in action. The University of Michigan Law School, like many elite U.S. educational institutions, uses a policy of affirmative action when it comes to applicants from disadvantaged backgrounds. Around 10% of the students Michigan enrolls each fall are members of racial minorities, 
and if the law school did not significantly, significantly relax its entry requirements for those students, admitting them with lower undergraduate degrees and lower standardized test scores than everyone else, it estimates that that percentage would be less than 3%. Furthermore, if we compare the grades that the minority and non-minority students get in law school, we see that the white students do better. That's not surprising. If one group has higher undergraduate grades and test scores than the other, it's almost certainly going to have higher grades in law school as well. This is one reason that affirmative action programs are so controversial. In fact, an attack on the University of Michigan's affirmative action program recently went all the way to the United States Supreme Court. For many people, it is troubling that an elite educational institution lets in students who are less qualified than their peers. A few years ago, however, the University of Michigan decided to look closely at how the law school's minority students had fared after they graduate. How much money did they make? How far up in their profession did they go? How satisfied were they with their careers? What kind of social and community contributions did they make? What kind of honors had they won? They looked at everything that could conceivably be an indication of real-world success. And what they found surprised them. We knew that our minority students, a lot of them, were doing well, says Richard Lempert, one of the authors of the Michigan study. Quote, I think our expectation was that we would find a, a half or two-thirds full glass that they had not done as well as the other students, but nonetheless, a lot were quite successful. But we were completely surprised. We found that they were doing every bit as well. There was no place we saw any serious discrepancy. What Lempert is saying, sorry, end quote, what Lempert is saying is that only by the measure that a law school really ought to care about, how well its graduates do in the real world, minority students aren't less qualified. They were just as successful as those admitted on grade grounds. And why? Because even though the academic credentials of minority students at Michigan aren't as good as those of white students, the quality of students at the law school is high enough that they are still above the threshold. They are smart enough. Knowledge of a law student's test scores is of little help if you are faced with a classroom of clever law students. Section 4. Let's take the threshold idea one step further. If intelligence matters only up to a point, then past that point, other things, things that have nothing to do with intelligence, must start to matter more. It's like basketball again. Once someone is tall enough, then we start to care about speed and court sense and agility and ball handling schools and shooting touch. So, what might some of those other things be? Well, I suppose that instead of measuring your IQ, I gave you a totally different kind of test. Write down as many different uses that you can think of for the following objects. 1. A brick. 2. A blanket. This is an example of what's called a divergence test, as opposed to a test like the Ravens, which asks you to sort through a list of possibilities and converge on the right answer. It requires you to use your imagination and take your mind in as many different directions as possible. With the divergence test, obviously, there isn't a single right answer. When the test giver is looking, what the test giver is looking for are the number and uniquenesses of your responses. And what the test is measuring isn't analytical intelligence, but something profoundly different, something much closer to creativity. 
Divergence tests are every bit as challenging as convergent tests. And if you don't believe that, I encourage you to pause and try the brick and blanket test right now. Here, for example, are answers to the uses of objects test collected by Liam Hudson from a student named Poole at a top British high school. Brick, to use in smash and grab raids, to help hold a house together, to use in a game of Russian roulette if you want to keep fit at the same time, bricks at 10 paces, turn and throw, no evasive action allowed, to hold the eider down on a bed tie, a brick at each corner, as a breaker of empty Coca-Cola bottles, and blanket, to use on a bed, as a cover for illicit sex in the woods, to use as a tent, to make smoke signals with, as a sail for a boat, cart, or sled, as a substitute for a towel, as a target for shooting practice for short-sighted people, as a thing to catch people jumping out of burning skyscrapers. It's not hard to read Poole's answers and get some sense of how his mind works. He's funny, he's a little subversive and libidinous. He has the flair for the dramatic. His mind leaps from violent imagery to sex to people jumping out of burning skyscrapers for very practical issues, such as how to get a duvet to stay on the bed. He gives us the impression that if, he, if we gave him another 10 minutes, he would come up with another 20 uses. Now, for the sake of comparison, consider the answers from another student in Hudson's sample. His name is Florence. Hudson tells us that Florence is a prodigy with one of the highest IQs in the building. Brick, building things, throwing. Blanket, keeping warm, smothering fire, tying to trees and sleeping in as a hammock or as an improvised stretcher. Where is Florence's imagination? He identified the most common and most functional uses for bricks and blankets and simply stopped. Florence's IQ is higher than Poole's, but that means little, since both students are above the threshold. What is more interesting is that Poole's mind can leap from violent imagery to sex to people jumping out of buildings without missing a beat, but Florence's mind cannot. Now, which of these two students do you think is better suited to do the kind of brilliant imaginative work that wins Nobel Prizes? That's the second reason why Nobel Prize winners come from Holy Cross as well as Harvard, because Harvard is not selecting its students on the basis of how well they do on the uses of brick test. And maybe the uses of brick is a better predictor of Nobel Prize ability. It's also the reason why Michigan Law School couldn't find a difference between its affirmative action graduates and the rest of their alumni. Being a successful lawyer is a lot more than just an IQ. It involves having the kind of fertile mind that Poole had. And just because Michigan's minority students have lower scores on convergence tests doesn't mean that they don't have that other critical trait in abundance. Section 5. This was Terman's error. He fell in love with the fact that his termites were at the absolute pinnacle of the intellectual scale, at the 99th percentile of the 99th percentile, without realizing how little that seemingly extraordinary fact meant. By the time the termites reached adulthood, Terman's error was plain to see. Some of his child geniuses had grown up to publish books and scholarly articles and thrive in business. Several ran for public office, and two were superior court justices, one municipal court judge, two members of the California state legislature, and one prominent state official. But few of his geniuses were nationally known figures. They tended to earn good incomes, but not that good. 
The majority had careers that could only be considered ordinary, and a surprising number ended up with careers that even Terman considered failures. Nor were there any Nobel Prize winners in his exhaustively selected group of geniuses. His field workers actually tested two elementary students who went on to be Nobel laureates, William Shockley and Luis Alvarez, and rejected them both. Their IQs were not high enough. In a devastating critique, the sociologist Pitarim Sorokin once showed that if Terman had simply put together a randomly selected group of children from the same kinds of family backgrounds as the termites, and dispensed with IQ altogether, he would have ended up with a group doing almost as many impressive things as his painstakingly selected group of geniuses. Sorokin concluded, quote, By no stretch of the imagination or of standards of genius is the gifted group as a whole gifted, end quote. By the time Terman came out with his fourth volume of Genetic Studies of Genius, the word genius had all but vanished. Terman concluded, with a touch of disappointment, quote, We have seen that intellect and achievement are far from perfectly correlated, end quote. What I told you at the beginning of this chapter about the extraordinary intelligence of Chris Langan, in other words, is of little use if we want to understand his chances of being a success in the world. Yes, he is a man with a one-in-a-million mind and the ability to get through Principia Mathematica at 16. And yes, his sentences came marching out one after the other, polished and crisp like soldiers on a parade ground. But so what? If we want to understand the likelihood of, of his becoming a true outlier, we have to know a lot more about him than just that. Thank you for watching. Please like, subscribe, and visit my channel for more exciting content.